Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everybody. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Today I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Bryson Lesniak from the University of Pittsburgh and Dr. Darren DeSaw from McMaster University way up in Canada. It's great to have a two-author podcast today to discuss the paper entitled Bone versus All Soft Tissue Quadriceptin Autograph for ACL Reconstruction, a Systematic Review that was published online in October 2020. Bryson and Darren, thank you both so much for joining me in the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Before we get into discussing the paper, why don't the both of you give the listeners a flavor of what kind of practices you all have with respect to ACL reconstruction and your general approach to autograph selection in your practices? Let's start with you, Bryson. Okay, so um, I'm at a university-based practice, uh, sports medicine only, um, at the University of Pittsburgh, and I um, I see all comers from from skeletally immature kids all the way to to um, the masters athletes. So I see ACLs of all flavors. So my graph choice kind of depends uh, upon an individual approach. I, I look at a variety of factors: age, activity level, gender, etc. Uh, and I and I'll do everything from from hamstrings all the way up through, uh, you know, quads, patellar tendon, and and um, allograft. Uh, and I, I tend to talk to the patient about it a lot. Um, my my ideal patient for quadricep tendon really is is probably the the active patient um, that's skeletally mature that's not um, you know a, a division one or professional athlete or a division one athlete that, that plays a position that requires a lot of squatting or kneeling because I'm worried about anterior knee pain with patellar tendon. Um, in general, over the last 10 years, quad has basically supplanted in my practice what I, when I used to do hamstring ACL reconstruction. So I, I do very few hamstring ACL reconstructions now because I've been pretty convinced that quadriceps is just a, a, a superior graft in my hands. Uh, the literature obviously is still ongoing. So I'd say for my practice now, um, for every 100 ACLs I do, I probably do 45 or so uh, patellar tendons. I probably do 45 or so quadricep tendons, uh, both autographs, obviously. And then, and then the rest, 10%, is split up between allograft and hamstring, depending on, on the patient. All right. What about you, Darren? Uh, well, uh, for myself, uh, again, from a practice standpoint, I work at uh, McMaster University, which is in Canada. Uh, I have both an elective sports medicine practice and a practice focused on uh, trauma. Um, and I treat, again, in a similar fashion to uh, Bryson, uh, patients of all ages and uh, activity status, including the professional athlete to the, to the weekend warrior. Uh, as it pertains to uh, draft selection, I would echo a lot of what uh, Bryson has said, and especially the uh, focus on an individualized approach. Uh, for myself, it is often very, very much a shared decision-making approach with the patient. It relies a lot on factors that come up in the history and physical exam, and I uh, particularly use uh, the preoperative MRI uh, and its templating as a huge uh, factor in, in the graphs that I end up going with. Of course, um, it's a discussion that has it's had with the patient, but how I frame that also considers the bony morphology that I see on the MRI. So in particular, what I'll look at is uh, slope, notch, uh, size, and shape, uh, sagittal cuts on the MRI. I also pay particular attention to the sagittal thickness of the quad tendon, patellar tendon, the morphology of the patella, particularly when thinking of using a bone block for my grasp, and that also factors in. Uh, all things kind of being equal, 
Uh, I have seen a, I'm a huge proponent of the quad tendon, I will say, whether bone or soft tissue. I, I'm probably 90% of the time soft tissue grass, and that is uh, largely the focus of the primary reconstructive option in, in my patients. Uh, I'd say probably you know, 60%, 70% quad tendon, uh, 20%, 30% patellar tendon, very few hamstring. Uh, where I use hamstring uh, is essentially if the patient has had it uh, on the other contralateral knee uh, done previously and has done well, I will often offer that again to not you know, mess with their otherwise winning formula. Uh, and then maybe potentially in the older weekend warrior who doesn't want the incision down the front of their knee for whatever reason. But by and large, hamstring has uh, fallen by the wayside in my practice, and it's primarily quad tendon and patellar tendon. The gap, I should say, also, I still use patellar tendon in our uh, semi-professional and professional athletes. Uh, however, that gap uh, between quad tendon and patellar tendon in that population is narrowing kind of each day. Bryson, when you're using quadricep tenotograph, when do you harvest a bone block? Uh, I think it's a good question. When to use bone block or or when not to use bone block, right? When to use all soft tissue. And I think right now, for me, I don't think there's a difference in, in outcomes. I don't think there's truly any difference if you use soft tissue or if you use bone block. I think um, the, the few times that I'll use um, bone block quadriceps autograph, because I almost always use soft tissue, but the few times I'll use it is in revision settings. Um, when... Um, you know, I want to fill a specific size tunnel. I think that's a little more predictable to take bone. Um, I also think if you need a longer tendon, so for example, um, if they have a short quadricep tendon on an MRI, you know, templating like Darren mentioned earlier, I think is really important. And if they have a really sh low, you know, if they have a really short quad tendon uh, that doesn't go very proximal, then I think taking quad can get you, taking bone block can get you another, you know, two centimeters of graft. So that can be helpful. Um, or if you need to go over the top in a revision setting, or or this isn't obviously an ACL topic, but anytime I do a PCL with quad autograph, just for that extra length, um, I would use a bone plug. Otherwise, I, I am exclusively uh, a soft tissue quad uh, autograph harvester, and it's been very good in my hands and, and in the literature that we're kind of processing and going through in our in our division, you know, with our group, it, it's really shown to be quite quite successful. Darren, I promise we'll talk about your paper eventually, but. I'm going to keep picking your brain more in general terms. Why don't you give the listeners your approach to harvesting quad tendon autograft? Yes. Uh, so when it comes to harvesting, uh, the way I set up my ACL in general is uh, kind of with the knee hung over, flexed at 90 degrees. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of how I'm going to harvest my graft uh, is determined a lot with the preoperative MRI. So those decisions of whether or not I'm taking a bone plug, whether or not I'm taking a full or partial thickness graft, how long I plan to go if it's all soft tissue, all of that is largely informed by uh, the preoperative MRI and, and altered intraoperatively as needed. Uh, when it comes to harvesting, what I will do is I, I use probably about a three centimeter incision and I try to use it through a mobile technique. Now, I know there are many different described techniques for this and some do it in a more minimally invasive harvest and some more uh, open. But generally speaking, a three centimeter mobile window approach uh, centered starting approximately about a centimeter from the superior pole of patella. I'll take that down to the tendon. And what I try to do is visualize the vastus medialis oblique muscle belly and leave a cuff of at least five millimeters or so off of that for later repair of the harvest site. Once I'm down to my tendon, 
I often will use a double blade knife, uh, similar to how I would if I was, say, doing a patellar tendon autograph. And I will predetermine that width based on, uh, again, my template and also my scope uh, at the time of surgery in terms of how wide I want to be so as to not overstuff the notch, but also so as to not be too small. And so I'll set that width based on that. Oftentimes, I will take a near full thickness graft when I do that. And as I harvest my, my length, um, free it all soft tissue uh, graft at, at that time. And then all the preparation for the graft, once it's freed, will be done on a back table. Uh, there are, and I have tried in the past, techniques where you can free it from the patella first and uh, do your sutures there as you work proximally. But by and large, I free the graft all as one piece and then take it to the back table for the later preparation for the fixation device. Darren, we'll stick with you. Why don't you go ahead and summarize the key findings of your paper? How many studies did y'all include and what did you find? So the... Uh, review was interesting. A total of 24 studies ended up uh, making it through our systematic screening process. Uh, the total uh, study uh, patient population looked at approximately 1,700 patients, average age 30 years, and mainly short-term to mid-term follow-up, anywhere ranging from 25 months to 40 months. To be included in the study, they needed a minimum of one year post-surgical data. Uh, so within that study population, by and large, the majority of patients were uh, those that had their primary reconstruction done with a bone block as part of their quadriceps tendon. And what we found across uh, patient-reported outcomes, such as the IKDC scores and the lithome scores, was that by and large, there's no difference. There's no difference in post-operative anterior-posterior translation. Overall, graft rupture rates as well were comparable between both graft configurations. Uh, a sub-analysis suggested that uh, it was a potentially higher uh, rate of atraumatic graft rupture in the uh, population that underwent reconstruction with a bone block. Um, however, that's, the study itself was not powered to, to determine that, but uh, that was a sub-analysis. And uh, what we also saw is between the two different groups, uh, those patients that had a bone block uh, demonstrated a higher rotatory laxity postoperatively as determined by the pivot shift. And so uh, those were, I would say, the major findings uh, from this uh, analysis of the literature to date. Bryce, I noticed that one of the papers you all included in your systematic review cited a 9% rate of patella fracture when harvesting quad tendon with the bone block. Why don't you talk about, from a technical standpoint, uh, common errors that you've seen or things that you think can happen intraoperatively that, that can predispose this complication, give the listeners maybe one or two pointers um, if they're going to be taking bone blocks at the time of quad tendon autograft harvest. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and it's, a, and it's an important kind of subject to broach, not only obviously for, for quad bone block, but also for tower tendon. But, but um, you know, the quadricep tendon, for, for a couple of anatomic reasons, is a little bit more prone to, I think, fracture than, than patellar tendon harvest is. Um, and there's a definite learning curve. I think that's one of the big things, especially at academic centers with, with, uh, with residents and fellows, et cetera. Um, there's a big learning curve, and you have to be really comfortable harvesting, harvesting the bone block with a quad because of the shape of the patella. In the patella, I always tell my, my residents and fellows, it's shaped like a, a home plate uh, in baseball, one of Darren's favorite pastimes. And um, if you're harvesting from the quad side of the patella, as you go distal with your bone block harvest, you're getting, you're getting down to a very narrow part of the patella. And if you're not dead center in that home plate patella, 
you're you're really close to a cortical edge, either medial or medially or laterally, and that's a stress that's a stress riser or a stress uh, area that that can be prone to fracture. Whereas if you're coming from the patellar side, it's wider, the you know, patella is wider approximately. So if you're a little bit off eccentrically, it's not as big of a deal. You're not nearly as close to a cortical corner of the patella um, that might be at risk for fracture. So so that's the big thing that that the big reason I think that you're more prone with with quad bone blocks. So you have to be really, really careful to be dead center on the patella. I don't do it, but I know some people take a one-shot view in the operating room to make sure they're they're, they're dead center. I, I think if you can manually feel the medial and lateral facets, you should be fine. And you should really be familiar with how the quad tendon inserts on the patella. It, and everyone's is a little bit different. Um, so you want to look at your, your uh, sagittal view on the MRI right before you start the case if you're going to do a bone plug and see how far distal on the patella the quad inserts or how far proximal it inserts because it doesn't insert dead on the, the absolute proximal pole of the patella. It, it's usually kind of down uh, the slope, that, that, that slope of the proximal pole a little bit. And so you can get yourself into trouble by taking a really distal plug accidentally. Yeah, those are all great points. And, and Darren hit on a point earlier when he was talking in his harvest technique about making sure you can clearly visualize that border of the VMO. And I think that's really important, especially in athletes with uh, large or developed VMOs. Um, I've found that VMO actually hangs over the medial most aspect of the tendon. And if you're not careful and you're not clearly identifying where the true medial border of that tendon is, that can actually bias the incision of your tendon as you start proximally, medially, and start biasing it laterally. And so you end up distally in a much more lateral position on the proximal pole of the patella. And then you're in a situation there which you're taking the bone block from there and with being pushed out laterally, you're obviously much more likely to fracture there. Darren, I thought it was curious that you guys observed that of the patients that underwent quad tendon ACL with bone block, that there was an increase in the amount of rotatory knee instability postoperatively, and as well as re-rupture rates. What do you think might be going on here? Um, what I will say is a couple of things. As was common with many systematic reviews, there is, uh, although we had a large amount of studies with 24 being involved, uh, the specific uh, question is aiming to look at differences between the two graft types. And so as part or an inherent uh, limitation of systematic reviews is usually the heterogeneity in study reporting. So what I will say is uh, what we did find is, as it pertains to these particularly interesting findings is rotatory instability and overall re-rupture rates. Uh, keep in mind that in this paper, there is a, if you want to say a selection bias almost, uh, by and large, the majority of patients in the study uh, had a bone block autograph. So it was almost like 1,500 out of 1,700 or so. So they're, you know, soft tissue patients are by and large underrepresented in this. That being said, uh, the finding that we did have is very, is interesting, and it's more from a hypothesis generating uh, standpoint. Uh, there are a lot of ideas, uh, you know, all of which are theoretical, uh, and they range from many different things in terms of, uh, for example, you know, potentially differences uh, in persistent rotatory instability and or uh, rupture rates. Uh, based on age, based on the activity level that these patients were doing. Of course, we can't really tease that out based on the uh, data that was supplied in the individual papers. Uh, there's also potential uh, 
again, again, theoretical, that uh, whether or not there is slippage at the screw quad tendon interface uh, at, with aperture fixation versus uh, suspensory fixation, for example, uh, or if the tendon itself is failing at that tendon bone junction. I know uh, kind of in my circles, there's, again, to, to Bryson's point about a learning curve with this uh, technique, uh, particularly early in some of my colleagues' uh, experience with quad tendon, uh, again, the feeling was to go with bone. And there was uh, one or two episodes uh, where the tendon actually separated from the, from the bone plug. And so, again, we're unable to capture that data or the reasons for these differences in the individual systematic review. But there are a lot of uh, theories that, uh, you know, require further attention. I do think it's interesting that uh, in our, you know, overall, again, I just want to reiterate that across all comers and rupture rates, there was no difference between the options. Sub-analysis, again, the study's not powered to determine this, but a sub-analysis suggested that bone block may have higher rates of atraumatic failure, and it kind of is in keeping with persistent, you know, higher rates of rotatory instability post-op as demonstrated by the pivot shift. So there might be something else going on, but whether or not that is uh, related to the graph itself or related to many of the other factors that go into why someone may fail uh, ACL reconstruction, whether it's, you know, the lateral side, whether it's meniscal deficiency or, or, or whatnot, uh, remains to be determined in this area for future research. All right, last question for the both of you. We'll finish on a technical point. How are you guys fixing the all soft tissue quad tendon on the femur and the tibia? Okay, um, so I've done it uh, a couple different ways. When I first started doing quad, I was taking longer graphs, so I had the graphs to spare. And so I would do a soft tissue um, uh, interference screw. And it doesn't matter, biocomposite, peak, whatever. But I, I would use a soft tissue interference screw on the femoral side. And if I had the length, I would do the same on the tibial side. If I didn't have the length, then I would put it over, like tie it over a suspension, whether it's a post and a washer or a button over the, over the t tibial tunnel. However, however I, could, uh, I could fix it. Uh, and then I switched lately to doing um, suspensory fixation on the femoral side instead of uh, a screw. And I've uh, taking much smaller graphs now, so I'm also doing suspensory fixation on the tibial side. Um, to me, um, they both work really, really well. I haven't had a problem um, with, uh, compared to any other graphs, with post-operative, um, you know, stretching or, or post-operative uh, failure of graph fixation compared to any other, um, any other graph type. So it's just a matter of how comfortable you are taking a large graph. As I've taken shorter and shorter quad uh, graphs, if you get long, you know, if you get over 75, 80 millimeters, you start getting into causing potentially a cosmetic defect with the rectus. And so I, I've gone to trying to stay between 60 and 70 millimeters total length. And then you almost have to use suspension fixation at that point because there's just not enough length to do, to do uh, uh, proximal and distal screw fixation. Yeah, I would, uh, I would say first I had the benefit of training and learning this technique at the University of Pittsburgh. And so Bryson was one of the major influencers that introduced me to this technique. And so I got to see how he did it, including some of the experience he just talked about, as well as some of my other mentors from, from that fellowship. And so during fellowship, I got to see all different configurations. And in fact, that was one of the um, reasons that started a subsequent study that we had looked at, looking at does graph fixation matter. And the conclusion of that paper was, particularly in quad tenon, that it didn't. Uh, that being said, uh, myself, using, the, again, again, mainly an all-soft tissue autograph, uh, I will use a cortical suspensory fixation device for the femur component 
and a interference screw, uh, either biocomposite or peak on the tibia. And then oftentimes what I'm doing is just backing up uh, the graft on the tibial side with a knotless anchor. When I'm using a bone plug, if I'm using a bone plug, it will be with an interference screw uh, on the femur and then similar interference screw on the tibia and the secondary fixation as well. I, I was going to echo uh, echo Darren's sentiments. I, I, I really like using two points of fixation on the tibia, uh, whatever you're, whatever you're, whether it's a knotless anchor, whether it's a post and a washer. I think, uh, you know, there's been studies in the, in the remote literature back in the mid-2000s that showed two points of tibial fixation is, is important for, for preventing um, uh, graft stretch or, or loss of fixation, especially if you use an interference group. So I, I really do that as well, like Darren said. I think it's a great, a great point. Well, fellas, this has been a great conversation tonight. Um, I didn't mention my introductory remarks, but you know, the three of us go way back. We all met during Darren and I's fellow year. Um, and Bryson, you've been a friend and a mentor. And Darren, I wouldn't dare call you a mentor, but you've certainly been a friend and a colleague. And I'm enjoying watching all the great stuff that you're doing up in Canada. Um, but we've talked about this in previous podcasts with respect to these systematic reviews. It's, these types of studies really help us wrap our arms around what exactly is out there in the literature and probably most importantly help us to identify uh, knowledge gaps and things that should compel us to study things uh, on a more prospective basis. So kudos to you all for asking an important question and for giving us some good information. Uh, thank, thanks very much, Andy. I, you went out on a limb uh, even just calling me the mentor, let alone Darren. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, that's very kind of you to say, and it, it's been great. I appreciate uh, being invited, and, and, and I, I don't want to speak for Darren, but I'm sure he does too, and I agree with you. I think the point of, of systematic reviews, at least in my eyes, and, and Darren, you and I have talked about it, is, like you said, it, it, it generates more questions for us to look at closely, and, and or, or it closes some doors, but it really is a door-opening um, kind of fishing expedition in a lot of ways, and so I think um, it plays a vital role in, in pushing our literature forward. Yes, I'd like to also, you know, echo that for sure. Thank you, Andy. It's been great to catch up with everyone as well uh, and to discuss this uh, paper. I am a huge proponent, as I mentioned earlier, of the quad tendon, and it is, you know, catching on. Um, you follow it either in our practices but also in social media circles. Uh, it's gaining steam. And, you know, one of the points that I always try and emphasize is that, you know, one is the systematic review element, and the second is, you know, graph choice has and will continue to be debated probably for forever uh, as it comes to reconstruction. And, really try and think about, in addition to all the other factors that we think about when we go into what we choose for a graft, uh, as it pertains to all soft tissue versus bone plug type grafts, what are we trying to capture? I know for myself, I don't particularly, you know, change the rehab, whether or not I'm using a bone plug or a soft tissue graft. And so when there's only potential for risk with regards to anterior knee pain and or fracture and no change in my rehab or by and large outcomes, you know, uh, the decision's obvious for me. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. This paper entitled Bone versus All Soft Tissue Quadricep Tendon Autographs for ACL Reconstruction, a systematic review, was recently made available online as an article in press and can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a good evening.